Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, is going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. Hey, everybody. Nice to see your beautiful faces. Um, how's everybody doing today? Good. Still waking up? Um, again, my name's Nellie. Welcome. Whether you're here in the flesh or joining us on the podcast. Hi, people online. Um, we're so glad you're here. To start off, I would love to um, just give a shout out. Last Sunday... We had a super small group's chili cook-off, chili and cornbread cook-off. Yeah, woo! And um, guys, I made some chili. I went out, went out on a limb. I did a little mole style. I did not win the chili cook-off. I was, <laughs> I'm still a little salty about it, I'm not going to lie. But I will say, we have the winner in the house. Her name is Maggie. Give it up for Maggie. She's the reigning champion. Honestly, one day, one of my... Uh, dreams when I'm retired is to do like a pop-up restaurant thing. And I'm going to serve this chili. It's going to be called the not award-winning chili. People are going to love it. Anyhow, um, so we're going to talk about Psalm 130 today. And before we dive in, um, let me tell you a little bit about why I like Psalms, because I adore the Psalms. Um, for one, it's the biggest book in the Bible. It's not why I love it, but that's, it's kind of cool. If you were to take your Bible, like physically, and just plop it open to a random spot, it's, it's, it's very highly likely it's going to fall open to the Psalms because it's got 150 chapters. Um, what else is cool about the Psalms? It's the most quoted book in the New Testament. Jesus really liked the Psalms. Um, when he was dying, he recited a Psalm, Psalm 22. Um, and it's a, it's a huge, big book full of poems and songs, really. And somehow, generation after generation, I mean, this is a couple thousand years old, guys. It was decided that these songs were really good, like they're really good songs. Now, we don't have any of the harmonies anymore, the melodies. We don't, we don't know what the original sounded like, but we do have the words, and it's really our privilege to be able to continue singing them, which is what we do on Sundays, which is pretty cool. So a recent study, this is going to be no surprise, but a recent study said that you are far, far more likely to remember a song that you sang than a sermon. Pretty cool, right? So because of that, I'm going to um, sing this sermon on the count of three. Ready? One, two, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Maybe one day. That'd be kind of crazy. But really, we have these psalms today um, because the people of God decided they were worth remembering and they were worth passing on to their children. And these songs remind us of who God is 
and how we can approach him. It's really a guidebook for how we can approach God and who he is. I love the Psalms because they give us words to pray when we are all out of words. I don't know if you've ever, ever been in a, in a place like this, but I definitely have. And there have been times where I can't touch the Bible, but I can always kind of get back to the Psalms because they say words that I'm feeling, sometimes really angry words. They give me words to say to God when I don't have any words left. So just a small tidbit, back like 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I had this wild idea that um, I was going to start recording people I loved reading the Psalms to me. And I was, this is like before we had iPhones, I found a way to like record it on my computer and put it into my iTunes library. And I'm so glad I did this because now it's just kind of stuck in my song shuffle. And every once in a while I'll be, you know, driving down the road and it'll switch from like Iron and Wine to like my grandfather reading me Psalm 6. And my grandfather's been dead for a handful of years. And it's this beautiful picture of, it always makes me cry, of course, that it's this beautiful picture of the words of people who loved God years ago reminding me of who God is today and how we can approach him. So I share that because that's really what Psalm 130 is all about. And just eight verses, so we're going to go through it verse by verse-ish. And um, just to get you oriented, um, Psalm 130 really deals with God as a righteous God. So in other words, the background of Psalm 130 is God as this righteous judge that we shouldn't be able to approach, but we can, who's perfect in every way. And in a paradoxical way, we're still invited to talk to him. So this Psalm, Psalm 130, is also smack sort of right at the end of a group of psalms called the Songs of Ascent. That's ascent, not like smelling ascent, but ascent. And tradition tells us that these were songs that were sung on pilgrimage, like as they were literally like walking on their way to Jerusalem to be at the temple to worship the Lord. So there's something about these psalms that really carry journey with them. So let's dive in. Let's dive into verses 1 and 2. We can get them up on the, on the slides. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Out of the depths. Out of the depths. The imagery here of depths in the Old Testament is more than just like a low place. It really is speaking to something like the bottom of the sea, where lots of chaos was imagined to be, or even like the depths of despair, even the depths of death. So we dive into this psalm, and we find out that the speaker is in the middle of something really difficult, like really painful, not in a good place. And in verse 2, we get a super strong demand of the Lord. And it's easy to overlook when you're reading it. But the speaker says, Lord, hear my voice. Pay attention. Let your ears be attentive to my cry. 
I love this. I, I honestly, I'm Italian. I love whenever I'm given the chance to be confrontational with Scripture and where it's actually, like, modeled to me. And this happens here in this psalm, as it happens in lots of psalms. I love how confrontational this is. Do you guys pray this way? I mean, honestly, this is a legitimate question. Do you talk to the Lord in, in this confrontational sort of way? Being this honest with God is, honestly, it can be very uncomfortable depending on your personality type. I understand, I understand not everyone is, has like a, a, a confrontational uh, gear that they can shift into. And to be honest, I think living in Los Angeles makes this even more difficult for us to be ultra real with God. And here's what I mean by that. So you've probably heard the story, this is like an old um, illustration of the boiling pot of water and then there's the frog that somehow got into the water and the water is very slowly boiling. And the frog is just happy swimming along, doing frog things in the water and actually has no idea that the water is, is boiling, that it's, it's killing the little frog, man. And the frog doesn't necessarily realize it because the frog has grown accustomed to the hot water and doesn't notice that it's heating up until frog's dead. R.I.P. Froggy. Sometimes I think of the water of Los Angeles. I've lived here a long time, 14 years. I think about the parts of our culture that we may not ever even notice because we're just swimming in the water like little froggies. But the parts of the water that are heating up that are actually quite dangerous to us. And it would be easy to overlook those parts. One thing I'm thinking about with this passage is the culture of LA that is performative. So if you've lived in long if you've lived in Los Angeles long enough, it doesn't take very long, you, you'll start to be an actor, not professionally necessarily. I mean, maybe some of you guys have. But you will actually, you'll learn how to put on an act. You'll learn how to put your best foot forward to make it look like you have it all together. Sort of pretend that everything is great. I think that's really dangerous. And the Psalms, this Psalm in particular, gives us license to smash that, to really come in the complete opposite spirit of pretending like we have everything together. The Psalms give us permission to get almost irresponsibly honest with God and with each other. That's why we keep telling you about this weekend you should come on. Because in community, when we're able to get super honest, the walls come down. And we get to experience freedom that maybe we've never experienced before. So let's look at verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Here we have the psalmist, the psalmist poet person doing something completely counterintuitive. You know, first they come and they're, they're being very insistent and confrontational with the Lord. Like, hear my cry. I really need you to hear me. Seriously, pay attention to me. And then now we have this sort of 
backing up to say, I remember who you are, God. And so instead of actually asking God for forgiveness, which would be like the logical next thing that happens, they're doing one of my favorite things in prayer, and that is this. The psalmist is reminding God who God is. God's not a record keeper of sins. He's generous and compassionate. This is something that we can do, um, and it may be even easier to do if you're, like, writing to God in a journal, letting that be, like, your, your prayer situation. It's really helped me. Reminding God who he is as a way of reminding ourselves and, and as a way of connecting with him. So in the last week, um, I had the opportunity to speak uh, at Fuller, um, Fuller Seminary at their chapel, and they asked me to speak on Hagar. And I don't have a ton of time to talk about this, but I want to mention one point about Hagar that is, I think, important to this passage. So just quick background. Hagar was uh, Sarah's servant girl who ended up being the mother of Ishmael, who was Abraham's firstborn son. It's a long story, very difficult, very brutal story. We can go to lunch and talk about it if you'd like. But Hagar had a face-to-face encounter with God. And it was very peculiar, even for the Old Testament. She was an Egyptian. She was an outsider. She was essentially a slave girl. She had so little standing, she almost had negative social standing. And she's the one who gets to face God in the wilderness, face-to-face, And what she says is this, you are El Roy, meaning you are the God who sees me. Because how is it that I could see you and still remain alive? Hagar was so stunned that she could be in the presence of God and not just like evaporate. She saw something of God's righteousness and how perfect he is because she understood She understood that from experience. If you were to keep a record of all of our sins and injustice, who could stand? It's easy for us to take uh, this for granted, honestly. After we've received the Holy Spirit, we're walking with Jesus, it's, it's super easy for us to just sort of take for granted, like, we get to talk to God? That's actually something we're allowed to do? And we don't just get eviscerated in his presence with how perfect and holy and righteous he is. I love that what the psalmist is doing here, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I love that the psalmist is reminding God of who he is. It speaks to the give and take of a relationship, like, hey, I know who you are, and yet I'm amazed I get to know you. But also, I need to remind you that you're a forgiving one. It almost, you have to imagine, like, what was going on? Was the psalmist doing something really naughty? I mean, there's something behind the psalm that we, we don't get to see. Or maybe it was the community that was going off, going wrong. I don't know about you, but I personally love getting notes from friends. 
I love when um, I love when someone writes me a note and says, "This is what I see in you," and you might not see it, but I see it, and it's really it's really nice, and it's a reminder of who I am, and it tells me that they see me. This is essentially what the psalmist is doing with God, and it's what we're invited to do in prayer. This may seem totally foreign, but there's something to telling God how we see him and who he is. We can make prayer out to be this really weird, formal thing. Like, we can make God to be this ancient monument that's, like, sitting up on a cloud somewhere. But the psalm, psalms like this really teach us there's a better way and that that's actually a false picture of who God is. So verse 4, with you there is forgiveness. The image here is actually speaking of uh, the psalmist like laying in front of the Lord because in that time if you had done something wrong, Um, and you needed mercy from, like, a king or a judge, you would go and literally lay on your face in front of the throne and plead for mercy. And it seems like that's what's going on here. And it says that forgiveness, with you there is forgiveness. And this comes out a little bit more in the original Hebrew, but what I love about this With you, there is forgiveness. Forgiveness is like a character here that is with God, that God can send out whenever God wants. It's like forgiveness minions. It's like a character, God doing God's bidding. I just want to point out here just for a second, this is not a normal word um, in the Old Testament for forgiveness. It's only used two other places in, in the OT. Um, the normal word for forgiveness is actually this word that means to carry or to lift up. Because typically we understand forgiveness in the Old Testament as God actually carrying and lifting up our burdens on himself. And I think that's a really beautiful poetic picture, so I wanted to point that out. But in Psalm 130, forgiveness is a, it's more than just a thing. It's a motivator for the poet. Forgiveness is something that when we are able to receive it, we're then able to serve the Lord. It's the kind of forgiveness that Paul talks about in Romans, where once we realize how much we've been forgiven, we're totally changed. We are um, in gratitude, wanting to respond and living a di- in living a different way. God's righteousness is held in perfect tension with how unbelievably kind he is. And if you want to know what that looks like in real life, just look at Jesus. So my mom, my mama, Mama Rosie, hi mom, if you're watching this, um, she grew up in Catholic school And she would tell the story of how there were these nuns that uh, ran ran the school who were extremely intense. Like, these nuns were not to be messed with. And apparently these sisters would come by with, um, I shouldn't laugh, I'm traumatized by this story and I wasn't even there. They would 
come by with uh, rulers and smack the desks and smack the kids' hands if they weren't listening or they weren't paying attention, sort of trying to scare them into submission. I mention this story because I think some of us have this picture of God as a righteous judge, that God's really angry and needs to smack us into submission. A recent uh, survey from Baylor University actually reported that half of U.S. Christians predominantly see God this way, as a critical, judging, cruel-type person. And psalms like this help us remember that we have to unlearn this stuff, guys. Like, so many of us actually have this picture of, of God as, like, the crusty, angry nun who wants to smack us to get us <laughs> to do the right thing. This is so far from the picture of the loving God in the Bible. He's forgiving. He's gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in unfailing love. So let's look at verse 5 and 6. This is the second half of this, this psalm. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. The tension of waiting is thick. It doesn't come through here in the translation very well, but the original word actually, there's this connotation of ongoing waiting. So sort of like, I have waited for the Lord. Like, I have been waiting for the Lord. I'm still waiting for the Lord. And truly, I think that waiting, as much as I don't want to admit it, I think waiting is like an underrated, underappreciated, totally legitimate type of bodily prayer. So hang with me on this. This is something I've experienced a lot of in life, so I'm going to speak to it. Waiting requires your whole self. It's not something you can just do with your brain. It's not just something that, you know, you can do a little bit. In order to wait for something, you need your whole self. And to be honest, waiting is it's pretty brutal. It's not easy. It's painful. When my dear, dear friends were having their firstborn child, it's really fun when your two closest friends end up getting married and having a baby. When they were waiting to have their child, um, Justin and Danielle, Danielle was in the hospital, I went to a little, little hospital in Glendale, up on the hill, right by Descanso, and I sat myself in the waiting room all night long, waiting for little baby Vera to be born. And I don't know why, but the nurses never came out and, like, gave me very many updates. So I just assumed, like, she was in active labor this whole time. I stayed up all night long, guys. I was so excited to see this baby be born. And, you know, the older you get, the harder it is to actually stay awake all night long. This used to be something I could do, like, like it was nothing in university. It's actually really hard to stay up all night. And it was also fairly lonely. But it was worth it because the baby was born. We all rejoiced. And it was amazing. But I mention that because there's something about 
the sacredness of a weight like that. There's something about that sort of excruciating waiting through the night that's like almost holy. It's a metaphor for just how sacred waiting can be in our own lives. So my question for you is, what are you waiting for? Is it something in your career? Are you waiting for love? Are you waiting for your chronic pain to end? Are you waiting for something in your family to shift so that there isn't so much strife and struggle? What are you waiting for? Waiting itself is honestly a really overlooked theme in the Bible. It's something that I think as Americans we find it difficult to think about. Um, Maybe because our culture is so obsessed with like instant everything. Uh, I can order dinner in an instant. I can send an email to someone across the world in an instant. I have very little patience for anything that I'm required to wait for. But here's something we can learn from the Bible and we can learn from this psalm to somehow teach us a different way. Waiting is a type of prayer, and it's extremely difficult. It's not for the faint of heart. In the scriptures, innumerable mothers wait to have a child against all odds so often, waiting in their barrenness, waiting when it seemed impossible. The people of God waited to be delivered from their enemies. They waited hundreds of years for the Messiah to come. Then Jesus arrives, shows us what God is like, lives a perfect life on our behalf, And then the night before he's to be crucified, he comes and asks his closest friends, hey, come, come, wait with me, pray with me, wait with me through the night. Because it was such a hard thing that he was facing at the cross. And he had to wrestle it out with God. He wanted to do it with his community. But they didn't wait with him very well, did they? They fell asleep. They weren't able to do it. Then Jesus sacrifices himself for all humanity, and his disciples have to do what? After he dies, they have to wait. But this time, just three days. And then he wakes up, he wakes up from death, and he changes history forever. But then Jesus gives them, as he gives us, this beautiful thing. He gives us the Holy Spirit to comfort us, to remind us what the Father is always doing, to speak to us. And now we, in a very grand scheme, we're waiting for Jesus to return. We're stuck waiting in the, honestly, the struggle and the pain of the now and the not quite yet of Christ's kingdom. We've been talking about the kingdom for the last handful of months. Where Jesus is indeed the king, but the totality of his reign we haven't fully realized. We haven't lived ourselves into it yet. So this is why sometimes when we pray for healing, people aren't healed. Sometimes they are. We get glimpses of heaven now in moments of worship, maybe even during ministry time, if you come down to get prayer, where we literally wait on the Holy Spirit to speak to us. It's in these moments that God is beautifully speaking. 
But still, mostly in life, we're waiting. We wait for him to return, to set everything right, to wipe every tear from our eyes, to do away with death forever. This is what we're waiting for. Like, this is what we have to keep in front of us, guys. Verse 4, I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. We have these dawn watchers. Who are these guys? We don't have dawn watchers today, do we? Maybe some of you guys are dawn watchers. Doubtful. What were they, what were they doing? Well, back in the day when, when you had these ancient cultures and, and cities that were not protected, you had people who waited for the dawn. They were guards looking out, making sure no one was coming to attack the city. And they had to divide up the night in watches of the night. And if you were unlucky enough to have like the 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. spot, you were really struggling to stay awake. And you were waiting for the first light of the morning. And if you were this person, you were probably just thrilled to see the sun come up. They literally waited and watched for the dawn. Because the night was heavy. Some of us feel that way today. Some of us barely made it to church. Some of us barely turned on the iTunes podcast because the night is heavy. In our families, in our personal lives, maybe even spiritually, emotionally, we could be feeling stuck like in the silence of those dark hours at night like we're waiting for the dawn. It really can feel like an epic battle. And I have been there. The image I have, uh, or the image that I sense from the Lord for us today concerning this dark night feeling is a sporty one. It's a sporty image. I feel like the Lord, wherever we are in that darkness, that dark night, where you feel like you're just waiting for something to change. I feel like the Lord is cheering us on. I feel like he's waiting on the sidelines of like a soccer match, a football match, and cheering us on like Ted Lasso. Like, you're going to make it. I'm with you. Do not give up. I'm with you. The last two verses of this psalm, Psalm 7, Psalm 137 and 8. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. With the Lord is unfailing love. The word here in the Hebrew means something like never-ending, self-giving, unbelievably loyal love. It's kind of like the word in the New Testament, agape, which you maybe have heard, like unconditional love that makes no sense. Put your hope in the Lord, because with him is self-giving, always generous, ongoing love that makes no sense. And with the Lord is full redemption, great redemption. So as I... um, I land this plane here. What, what does great redemption look like in your life? Like, what do you need redeemed? What has been taken from you that you really 
You just need God to fix. The very end of Scripture is in Revelation. Revelation's a wild book. At the very end, there's a picture of Jesus sitting on the throne. It looks to a time that we're all waiting for when he will set all things right. And he's there saying, I am making everything new. It's an active idea that Jesus is making all things new. And we get to be a part of that right now. This is what we're waiting on, guys. When we talk about waiting on the Lord, when we try to imitate this psalmist, ultimately, we're waiting on Jesus to make everything right. What is it that you need Jesus to make new today? So I'd like to invite the, um, the band back up. We're going to spend a little time worshiping the Lord a bit more. And I'm going to invite you that if you are struggling right now with maybe a dark night of the soul or a, uh, a moment where it feels like you're, you're waiting on God and God's not answering, if you're really struggling with a time of waiting in your life, we'd love to pray for you. Just come up front. We will put a hand on your shoulder, say, come Holy Spirit, and join our prayers to your prayers. Also, maybe, I don't know, maybe you're, you're struggling to just even talk to God, period. And you want to be able to pray the way this psalmist does. The thing about this psalm is so crazy. It recognizes God's righteousness, but also is like, hey, listen to me. Like the one thing this psalm asks for is God's attention. And if you need that kind of boldness, like maybe that's foreign to you. It doesn't feel natural to pray that way. Come down and get some prayer. So I want to pray. I want to end with this one um, verse from Daniel 9 that is very similar to this psalm. If you would just close your eyes with me and maybe let your spirit pray this even as I read it. The context of this is um, Daniel is admitting that God's people had turned away from him, admitting that um, all the things God warned would happen if they disobeyed had actually happened, and yet there's so much grace. So here's the prayer. Give ear, our God, and hear. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Amen.